Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at capitalallocators.com. I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. My guest on today's show is Jennifer Choi. Jennifer Choi is the CEO of the Institutional Limited Partners Association, commonly known as ILPA. ILPA is a nonprofit that engages, empowers, and connects limited partners to maximize their performance. Jennifer leads the implementation of ILPA's responses to emerging issues impacting the private markets industry. Prior to ILPA, she served as Vice President of Industry and External Affairs for EMPEA, the Emerging Market Private Equity Association. Our conversation covers ILPA's mission, engagement with limited partners and general partners from an operational perspective, as well as pertinent topics to each stakeholder. We dive into her views on standardization in the industry, technology, DEI, ESG, and how ILPA is supporting the industry in all fronts. Please enjoy my conversation with Jennifer Choi. Jen, it's great to see you. Great to be here. Thanks, Scott. Tell us a little bit about what ILPA is, what it stands for, and the mission. The tagline is, we are the only global organization dedicated to advancing the interests of limited partners. But the tagline is true. We really are singularly focused on what LPs need to be successful, whether that's as practitioners, as investors, as an organization, as institutions that are advancing private capital around the world. How long have you been at OPA? I joined OPA in 2014 as part of the creation of a new role and also opening up a new office for the organization. I opened up our Washington, D.C. office. At the time, was really brought in with the mandate to step up our engagement with the industry, with the GP community, but also stakeholders like the SEC. So one of the first things that I did, I, I think it was week one on the job, was I was having conversations with lawyers, with members, but also with the then director of the Office of Compliance and Inspections and Examinations at the SEC, because it was just a few weeks after the sunshine speech of May 2014, when a lot of those issues around Phoenix expense disclosures were first really being elevated. Maybe give a sense of how big you have, what, 600 members? Yeah, we're 600 institutions around the world, 50 countries. That translates to about 7,000 professionals who are focused on private capital in some shape or form. So it's a mix of folks in the front office doing the deals and managing the relationships with the general partners, but it's also in-house legal professionals increasingly Um, ESG specialist folks who are focused on things like sustainability or diversity, equity, inclusion, but also middle and back office and the CIOs too. Anybody who cares about and is, is really trying to make themselves better equipped to manage the private capital investments of their institution. What does that engagement look like? How do you support the non investment people who are trying to manage all these components? If you're in the middle or back office, let's say at a limited partner organization, you might care a whole lot about getting better information from your general partners. 
you might care a whole lot about seeing more standardization in what you're getting, whether that's around costs or what's in the underlying portfolio or you know ESG metrics, whatever it might be. And so over the years, we've had a lot of engagement with folks like that around different template initiatives. For example, the people who are making the requests and then handling the data coming back tend to be quite involved in a lot of that standardization work that we've done. Do you see it as from sitting the seat on the LP side, it's time savings, it's negotiating savings. I think there's just a lot of benefits to all the stakeholders within the private equity community. Is that a fair assessment? It is. And I I think one of the reasons why we've been reasonably successful in a lot of the work we've done to standardize or to create these best practices is that, you know, certainly the LPs get it. It shortens their learning curve. It lessens the amount of time that they have to spend asking for certain things because ILBA has gone out into the market and tried to educate everybody about what good looks like and and what is best practice. And on the part of the GPs who are not members of ILPA, but really important stakeholders, they see the benefit in it, it reduces the sand in the gears and it makes things that much easier for them. They know, again, what good looks like. What do they need to deliver to satisfy the needs of their clients, the LPs? So if I'm a GP and I'm working with the LP side, I mean, there's a common initiative to actually point in the right direction, but at some level you have divergent biases or preferences or whatever it may be. How does that interaction look like to kind of row in the same direction, even though you may have opposition at some level? It's the 80-20 rule lived every day, right? You know, you're trying to get to whatever that that tipping point is going to be that makes everybody's lives just a little bit better. You know, we do work and engage with a lot of CFOs, for example, within GP organizations around the the standards and the templates that ILPA has produced and, and will produce. And I think while they would love every LP to ask for exactly the same thing every single time, that's not realistic. And, and frankly, you know, the divergence exists on both sides of the coin, right? There is going to be some level always of heterogeneity, even at the margins, for what different LPs need. A Dutch public pension is going to have different requirements than, say, an insurance company in Ohio. They just are. We recognize that certainly the GPs are living that. And on the GP side of the table, their strategies, how they run their firms, the kind of infrastructure and technology that they have access to, the levels of staff. It also varies across the GP landscape. But we're trying to kind of insert ourselves a little bit in the middle and to be that bridge to build those bridges between the GPs and the LPs to try to get to that 80-20 solution wherever we can. I've also seen it done at the fund administration level where I need a reporting stack and you can have 50 flavors and ILPA was one of them that I experienced with one fund administrator. Do you see that adoption within those stakeholders becoming more prevalent? Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you think back 10, 20 years ago in our industry, how many GPs were outsourcing fund administration then? And then fast forward to today, you know, we've certainly seen a trend in favor of outsourcing a lot of those those functions because, you know, frankly, it's easier to turn it over to somebody who's doing this day in and day out and has that technology that scales across all of their clients. And as we've rolled out different standards over the years, the fund administrators have been very quick to both help us steer towards an answer, an 80-20 solution that, again, is reasonable, realistic, workable, to the extent it has to be flexible on the margins. But, you know, they've been engaged at that level, but also on the back end, once those standards come out, the fund administrators have been really quick 
to take these up, to build them into their systems. And so have the investment consultants, I would say. So, you know, the folks who, like us, are kind of somehow in the middle of the GPLP information flow or relationship see the value of trying to adopt uh, as much standardization as possible. It's an area that continues to evolve and we're seeing new technology coming to market. You're seeing legal tech. I mean, I would add that in terms of the ability to actually track fees and expenses, those having a consistent standardization will help them actually identify those expenses and the allocation of that. That's a challenge no matter who you are, if you're a big firm or a small firm, is just trying to track where you allocate those fees and expenses to appropriately allocate that to each fund or whether it's a management company expense. That, I think, just creates more efficiency. It's a great thought, Scott, because you know more and more as LPs have this information, of course, they get the question from the GPs, what are you going to do with it? And part of it is that, you know, we're, we're building the infrastructure and the technology and the capability to do something with that data, even as it's starting to come in. But what, what are LPs doing? One thing that they're doing with it is they are looking at that allocation of costs and looking back at the LPA and doing these spot checks to say, OK, are you allocating things in the way I would expect based on how the legal docs are drafted? But another thing that they're looking at is what does it cost me to get that return? from a manager. It's a different type of dialogue depending on the LP. You know, part of it might be, I'm evaluating whether you're good at firm management. You're a fund manager, but you also are running a firm. And are you efficient and effective at doing that? Or do you have a lot of overhead? What does that tell me about your capabilities in, you know, running my money through the fund? The other side of the coin though, is in some parts of the world, for some LPs, they're under a lot of pressure around the costs associated with investing in private capital. And so as they're being compelled by their stakeholders to be more transparent around, well, well this is what it what private capital accounts for in terms of total return to the program. And this is what it accounts for in terms of proportion of total costs to the program. And so they have to look at both sides of that equation. And so LPs are getting more sophisticated about this as more of this technology comes online. And with legal tech too, you know, enabled by machine learning, certainly, you know, being able to take all of your fund documents that you've agreed to in the past, get them into a system and have the system break those down into component parts so that you can actually see, you know, on a comparative basis, how terms between funds and between managers look, but also looking at that trajectory. That is really what I think a lot of LPs are hoping to be able to do to become that much more effective in their negotiation. So when you think about the LPA, I mean, do you see like, is it you continue to move the needle towards some harmonization over a model LPA? Is that a 10-year journey? We published the Model Limited Partnership Agreement a few years ago. We did one version that follows kind of more of the so-called European whole of fund waterfall and another that follows more of that modified deal by deal. So two versions of the LPA. And we knew when we published, it was the work of a lot of really smart people, really passionate people, but we knew that this would be looked at as a resource and not something that would be adopted wholesale across the industry. And that's okay because it's it serves as a baseline. It's a legal articulation of some of those core concepts and principles that are really critical to limited partners. I smile when you ask the question, is this a 10-year journey and is there any kind of normalization or standardization in these legal docs? Well, only because (laughs) the firms that serve as fund counsel 
you know, there's more and more consolidation in that space and they have a house document. So if you have only a handful of firms negotiating on behalf of the majority of GPs around the world, each of whom are really pushing for their form, that's where the standardization might be coming. It's not to the benefit of the LPs or to the benefit of the industry, but that's where you're starting to see what is more of a so-called standard. It's just not an LP aligned standard. It's very similar in my mind to is this from the swap agreement. So it's, it's, it's you started base camp. And then you go and do what you can. And some people just negotiating, having negotiated many LPAs, it's just a function of how much power do you have? How much money am I allocating? Where can I move the needle? And knowing I'm working off of X law firm's form, it's okay, we know we're going to go right to the waterfall because we know that this needs to be worked on. Not right, not wrong, just is. And so I think there's a lot of benefit here to work off of that standard and, and it'll be exciting to see kind of where things go. Yeah, we get asked this question all the time. Why can't private equity work like ISDA? Why can't there be a single form document that serves as the baseline? And it's interesting because in the venture space, you know, at least between the venture firms and the underlying, you know, the founders, portfolio companies, they do have a standardized term sheet that they use. Yeah, safe note. And NVCA, you know, had developed their model term sheet years ago, and that's that's been adopted by a lot of the venture firms. So, you know, why can't we do something like that in private equity, private capital more broadly? You touched on legal tech a little bit. So you have this emergence, you have the buzzwords of AI, you have standardization of NDAs. Any thoughts on that that you guys are kicking around at ILPA? Not ourselves. We're trying to stay on top of these developments in the market. And some of it's coming from providers who set themselves up specifically to tackle this opportunity, challenge, whatever, however you want to think of it. And in other cases, it's existing players that you wouldn't expect to have developed kind of an interesting proprietary capability around legal tech. And by nature, the fact that they're seeing lots and lots of these documents, they're trying to figure out a way how to maximize their effectiveness by you know, building a tech solution in-house, but they're not a tech shop themselves. Some of the law firms, I would expect you might start hearing about it from some of the investment consultants and then some of these tech firms, but also shops that started off as tech providers to, or tech solution, tech-enabled solution to LPs, but have built out that capability, right? So they might've started in the, the cost data arena and have migrated beyond that. Again, we're trying to just stay on top of where where the ball is moving because there's a lot of these really interesting developments. We're not in the business of backing any particular horse. We don't endorse any particular providers, but we have a tool on the ILPA website that allows members to sort of put in what are those what do they need from a technology-enabled solution? And it spits back out for them a list of the providers that are known to us. And that a bit of a side-by-side comparison on the, the features and functionality, those tend to be platforms and solutions that are known to our members, meaning we know to some degree members who use any of the solutions that are included in that list. You talked about the ILPA DDQ. Can you share what that is and any developments? It's a document that is widely used across the industry. Um, For good or bad, you've had to fill one out many times, but it's been available in some form to LPs and GPs now for over a decade. We went through a pretty uh, intensive process to update the DDQ 
in 2021 to align with what we were doing in ESG and DEI, but also all of the guidance that ILPA had published over the years with respect to things like GP-led secondaries. We've got some forthcoming guidance on continuation funds that would be reflected. Really digging down into the things, I mean, this is a dynamic industry, so making sure that this tool, which covers a series of questions and sort of allows both a yes, no, but also a deeper dive on all of the things that an LP would need to know about the team, about the economics, the ownership, the operations, the decision making, the controls, ESG, NDE, and I, risk management, all of those things that you want to know as an investor going into a potentially 17-year <laughs> relationship with a, a GP, right? It's supposed to be a 10-year, uh, but we know they're often longer than that. You want to get all of that information out on the table early and to do so in a way where it's a quick hit, you know, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, and then to get the detail behind it and set up intentionally that way to help LPs really quickly get to, based on how they think about underwriting, the yellow flags and the red flags. So where can they focus in on when they're on site with a manager? How are they going to focus their time? It's a very powerful and efficient way to gather information because people get asked the questions over and over again. One question I have on that is how are some of the consultants dealing with this? Because they have their own version. Is there any kind of merging of all these questions into one uniform document? That would be the dream. <laughs> but we did make an effort to really bring the consultants into that process in making those updates to the DDQ. And what we've heard is that the overlap is actually quite significant. So there might be some subtle changes around formatting, but the essence of what's being asked is effectively the same. Now, I say that to a GP and the GP would say, but can't you just get it all in the same place? Or can't I just fill out the ILPA version and give it to everybody? You know, part of that is that consultants, they have to meet the needs of their underlying clients and their underlying clients might have a very specific category of information that they require. I'm not sure we're ever going to kind of go the last mile as an industry and have exactly the same document in every single DD process, but the substance is effectively very, very similar. There's some exciting stuff you guys are working on. You've got diversity, ESG, love to hear more about all that. I mean, the amount of data that you're looking to collect, the templates, is an exciting turn. It is. And just to focus on diversity, equity, inclusion first, you know, we started our journey around DEI as ILPA, engaging with our members back in 2017, really triggered by what was going on in Silicon Valley and Me Too. And at the time, the emphasis was on risk and conduct. So for LPs who had exposure to the firms in question back in those days, understanding, well, what, what could we have done differently? What questions could we have posed? What could we have understood better about values and culture? And, you know, what is that code of conduct that we really want to press our managers to have in place? And it was less about that inclusion, belonging, and equity piece. And certainly, uh, we focused initially on things like due diligence questions and a template to capture diversity within the firm, within the, the general partner. In 2020, I think we all experienced a really catalytic moment of reflection, but also a call to action to operate differently and to change our mindset, really. And so we, you know, following on just the, the conversations we were having with members after the murder of George Floyd 
and the calls for justice that followed very quickly came to the realization that we were done talking. We really wanted to focus on action and we wanted to lift up those leaders in the industry, LPs and GPs alike, who were living these values within their organizations and within their investment portfolios. So we created the Diversity in Action Initiative. It was more than a pledge, more than a call to action. This was about, we're gonna hold these folks up because we know what good looks like. We wanna elevate them as examples and we wanna learn from them and use that as a, a cascading catalyst for more action across the industry. And that's exactly what has happened. So we launched with 46 signatories in December of 2020. And today we have 300 and they are coming together with us and with each other regularly and focused on solutions to specific challenges around advancing diversity, equity, inclusion, whether that's your hiring practices, your policies, your culture. If you get diverse talent in the door, are they going to stay? What are you doing to ensure that you've got the kind of culture where people feel that sense of belonging, where they feel like there's a future for them? living your values, but also doing that with your capital. You know, for some firms, you only have, you know, some GPs are very small. They don't hire a lot. There's not a ton of turnover. They may not have analysts. So what are they doing? They're very focused on how are we partnering with diverse founders? How are we partnering with companies that are serving society with diversity and equity as part of that lens? We're really pleased with the level of engagement within that community. It's been terrific. And to be able to show that progress with some of the reporting that we've done on all of the things, the great things that they're doing um, has been super rewarding for the OPA team and, and for the members who are involved in that work. Seems like you'll have some solid benchmark information. Then you take that back to that community and say, okay, how are we moving the needle here? Is that fair? That's exactly right. It's straightforward to say, well, we're going to focus in on the diversity metrics within an organization. What does the economic ownership look like from a diversity perspective? Or what is the makeup of your investment committee? Or how many partners do you have that sort of span the full breadth of diverse representation? You can look at that, but progress is also really, really important. Because if we're just focused on the numbers and we say, well, the bar is this, we're ignoring the fact that there's tons of other ways to show progress within an organization, again, whether it's internally or in how you're deploying your capital. So we don't collect those metrics, but we're very engaged with LPs around, ask those questions, ask for the quantitative information and ask for the qualitative information, but most importantly, ask about progress. On that qualitative piece, what does that look like? The quantitative piece is easy. It's like, okay, our ultimate goal is that parity, but what about qualitative side of things? Well, qualitative is things like, in terms of how they deploy capital, talk about how DE&I shows up in your evaluation of a prospective investment. Is this part of the book that the IC is looking at? Are you talking about the diversity of the boards of your portfolio companies? At what point are you talking about that? Internally, what are your policies like? Are you changing and updating your policies? Who's involved in that? Who's involved in your hiring panels? You know, if you've got some sort of a quantitative target, what are you doing as part of your hiring process to help you get there? Whether it's, you know, we want gender parity in the pool of candidates or we want final slates that have a minimum of two diverse candidates or whatever it is. What are you doing to get to that goal? How are you rewarding people in your team who are demonstrating a commitment to DE&I and contributing to the progress of the organization. Those are the kinds of qualitative conversations LPs are having. 
when you look at these initiatives, do people converge to a spot or, or, or is the gap pretty wide on views about what does it look like? How do we, how do we start moving that flywheel? Is it starting at how we recruit and engage people or, or are people all over the place in terms of how they think about it? I think the trend we're seeing is for groups that historically have not recruited straight out of undergrad, they're starting to engage with undergraduates, even if they're not recruiting yet, or they're contemplating, well, could we develop an internship program so we get more exposure to that talent cohort? So there's this general trend moving earlier and earlier. Some firms are engaging a lot more at the high school level. And so going kind of going beyond what we've seen in the past around financial literacy or STEM, but really just trying to, at the earliest opportunity, depict this as a potential path. This is a career opportunity. And it's something, you know, I, you and I, when we were high school students, did we imagine we would work in private equity? No, didn't even know what it was. So I, I think it's it's a smart strategy. It requires investment. It requires resources and the commitment of the leadership to do that. But that's the general trend is to move earlier. It also seems like there's a training and education component. Do people talk about education and training on what that is? They do. They talk about it a lot, kind of getting beyond the financial literacy piece or the kind of economics of what's in it for me and appealing to that next generation. A lot of it is being able to make the join back to impact on the community and the economy, because so much of this next generation of talent really wants to know about what's my what's my meaning, what's my contribution to the world in which I live, in which my family lives. And so I, I've heard a lot of limited partners and general partners talking about making that connection to the values of this upcoming generation. Um, from an education perspective, too, I think there's been more and more effort through groups like SEO, for example, to get those educational opportunities specifically around private markets to that talent you know, at the right point in time. And to shorten the learning curve for firms that, for example, don't typically hire analysts right out of undergrad, part of the challenge for them is they may not have a training program. They may not be hiring enough people to warrant that that kind of an investment. So if they can partner with an organization that does that for them at scale, much lower cost, and is also getting them access to diverse up-and-coming talent, that's hugely appealing. So we need more of that. Do you want to talk about ESG? Let's talk about ESG. <laughs> the reality is our members, maybe not wholesale, maybe not uniformly, and certainly not at the same level of application everywhere, but our members are thinking about this. They're acting on ESG. They have been for a long time. An assessment of risks of any investment has probably always included elements of what we now have labeled ESG. It's just that the discourse is in a different place than the realities of what investors have experienced for a very, very long time. We've really focused on the members and what a limited partners need and how do we meet them where they are? How do we support them in their journey? Because they are all at different places in the journey. And so that means things like making sure we're tackling the questions that you would pose during a diligence process with respect to ESG. So making sure that that's well addressed within the ILBA DDQ in partnership with the folks at PRI, building a roadmap, giving 
LPs a tool to assess what level of maturity do my managers have with respect to how they think about integrating ESG into their own risk assessment, their sourcing, their underwriting, their management, monitoring, data, all of that. And so we've built an ESG roadmap and an assessment framework to help LPs do that. And also educationally focus on how can we help train up different members within their team. There are the folks who are new to private markets and new to ESG. We've built an asynchronous course, an online course that they can take at their own pace to help them get the basics, the one-on-one. And you know, also looking to do something that is a level deeper for the more experienced professional who's trying to figure out in a very dynamic marketplace of ideas, around ESG and practical application, but also in a world of net zero commitments and and ISSB and SFDR and TCFD and all all of the different obligations and commitments and frameworks, how are LPs making sense of all that? You know, there were some recent new SEC marketing rules came out. What's your involvement between OC and the community? Like, how do you guys kind of navigate and provide some input if that's something that you do? Well, every time there's a new rulemaking proposal, we take a very close look, try to get to an assessment of, is this going to impact LPs at scale, directly, indirectly? What's the scope of the impact? And then we'll test that assessment with members. We'll test that assessment with some non-member stakeholders and legal experts as well. And from there, we decide, okay, how are we going to engage? So for example, for the last year plus, we've been very focused on the private fund advisors rule proposals and less so on the marketing rule, which has already come out. There's already been interpretive guidance. Um, But in terms of how we're working with the staff at the SEC, we're plugged into the rulemaking teams around any of those rules that have that potentially broad scope of impact on the LP community on the private fund advisors role, on the marketing role, now that we're at the implementation phase, we're talking more to IM staff about trying to understand what does this mean from a compliance perspective to get that clarity. Also engaging with the commissioners and their staff as well. So it's not just the rulemaking staff and not just examinations, but also the commissioners. What's the next chapter for ILPA? Well, I think we're still in very practical terms, navigating what does it mean to engage as a community? Because the last few years has been radically disruptive in terms of how we think about coming together. And we're very good at Zoom. We're all very good at Zoom if we can find the mute button after three years, but we're all very good at it. And we also all really crave that person-to-person interaction. The models of the kind of pre-COVID era may not hold up in the post-COVID era as far as how LPs want to share information with one another, how they want to hear from their GPs, you know, how they want to meet new GPs. So I think we're we're learning, we're listening, learning, watching to see, um, because we're hearing from some LPs that they've really altered their travel patterns. They're doing a lot less travel. They're doing fewer in-person meetings. They're being much more judicious with their time. And they're very comfortable in the digital world. They're happy with that. And we're hearing from others that they really want more opportunities to be together. And so navigating that, I think, is going to be very interesting for us as an industry over the next couple of years. As we close out, what's the one resource or reading material you often provide to people in the community? That's a tough one for me to answer because there isn't. There's not a go-to. My answer to that is more it's people. I tend to refer people to other people. And there's some individuals in this industry who are 
incredibly thoughtful, generous, you know, their superpower is they're a connector. And if they don't have the answer, they're going to know somebody who does. I have a list of those people that I go to again and again and again. And they're so valuable to have as part of your network. When you find somebody like that to really hang on to them. Well, it's been wonderful to spend time with you and I look forward to staying in touch. Likewise. Thanks so much, Scott. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.